0: This is Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George, broadcasting on CFUR 88.7, and I'm your host, Stuart Parker. are listening to CFUR 88.7 on your FM dial. I'm Stuart Parker. This is Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George, and it is Monday, November the 16th at 11 a.m., and it's the fourth week, so we are back to our regular political panel featuring representatives from the Green Party, B.C. Liberals, B.C. Conservatives, and BC NDP in the first post-election panel following the BC provincial election win by the NDP uh, just a couple of weeks ago. This broadcast is made possible by the support of Los Altos Institute and a grant from the Canadian federal government in the form of the Local Journalism Initiative. Well, it's the first uh, post-election political panel here on Missing Peter Zosky and Prince George. Uh, Returning from her campaign in Langley, uh, Cheryl Weins representing the Greens. Uh, And then uh, we have our uh, usual suspects, uh, Sam Schechter from uh, the NDP, Ryan Campbell from the BC Liberals, Nathan Gita from the BC Tories, And uh, so, first of all, welcome back, everybody. Thank you. So, we've got a lot to talk about. We've got some uh, entrails and tea leaves to go through. Very interesting election results in their final form uh, in this campaign. And um, I think we might as well start uh, in Cheryl's backyard. We Mm. saw... Um, if there's any part of the province that has undergone a political realignment uh, in the last election, it's the Fraser Valley. It's that region between uh, Hope and uh, Surrey that has a radically different political complexion than it has ever had before. Uh it is full of New Democrat MLAs. They hold the majority of Fraser Valley seats to our amazement because um, this is a region that was viewed in many ways as being far more secure territory for the BC Liberals and for parties of the right than we think about the North or the regions that they did hold as being uh who would like a first try at explaining the realignment of the Fraser Valley? Sam, go.
1: Yeah, Stuart, I, I don't always like to brag about how right I am and how often <laughs> I'm right, but I want to point out to our dear listeners and everybody else that I called Langley and Chilliwack in 2010. And the reason I called it in 2010 is because I was teaching at the University of the Fraser Valley. And much to my surprise when I started teaching out there, my students were in favor of ideas like supervised injection sites. They were in favor of halfway houses. They wanted to see prostitution and marijuana legalized. They had very progressive views on law and order issues and me being from the big city heading out to the valley to teach at university, I did not expect this amongst my students. And I started realizing that the the politics of the Fraser Valley of my students, it was not their parents' politics. It was a new generation that had new ideas, was taking up interest in different sort of politics than what their parents had voted for forever. And now I'm I'm 10 years out from starting my teaching there and it has come to fruition. I also wanna give a special shout out to former MLA Chuck Puckmeyer of New Westminster, who was the first person I heard call uh, Langley to go NDP. Uh, when he said, hey, man, have you seen those crime stats? Those are our people, man. (laughs) And, you know, there there is some truth about that, 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 you know, poverty and crime are often in the same areas and the poor jurisdictions of this province tend to vote NDP. And there are a lot of people who in the Valley are saying, you know what, housing is unaffordable. You know what party was there on housing? Wasn't the BC Liberals you know, I uh, support all these justice issues. You know what party hasn't been there? I support gay rights. You know what party hasn't been there? It's the party of their parents' generation. And so I I wanna say that this was not totally unforeseen, especially looking at the, the Chilliwack Hope by-election of a couple of years ago, where the NDP won in a by-election. And I also wanna conclude my opening uh, enormous monologue by giving a shout out to Cheryl Weens for her Campaign for the Greens in Langley. Uh, everybody deserves congratulations for standing for public office. And uh, Cheryl, I think you ran a fine campaign.
0: So um, I, think, uh, you, I think I think Ryan has taken the most shots. So uh, Cheryl got the most congratulations. But I think that in many ways, Sam, you're saying the stuff that the people who worked for Mike DeYoung on the Matsqui by-election would have said in 1994, when the Fraser Valley first became a liberal fortress, this is exactly the kind of stuff that I was hearing from, like, "How did Mike DeYoung beat Grace McCarthy in Social Credit, and now there's a liberal MLA in the Valley?" And it was a story not unlike yours. So, Ryan, what's your take? How did this, how did this thing, this fortress that the BC Liberals built, how did it slip through their fingers?
2: Uh, I'll say I didn't expect uh, the Liberals to hold Langley either. Uh, to be honest, uh, Chilliwack, uh, I thought could go either way. Um, obviously Lori has did not help that situation, but, uh, I, I think, I think Sam's points are correct uh, that, you know, the, the, the kind of person that's moving to Langley is a young professional that can afford housing there, but can't afford housing in Vancouver or Burnaby or the North shore. And they resent that. And, uh, and they're going to resent the government that allowed that to happen. And frankly, I think the, uh, the Liberals have, have lost the urban professional vote and the urban vote in general. Um, so it's not that surprising that people from urban areas that have moved to suburban areas are, are turning against them. Uh, it's just a, a rot that's been in the party for the last several years, but especially under, under Andrew Wilkinson, that uh, the party's become more and more of a rural-based party and, and out of touch with urban BC, and the election results reflect that.
0: Now, I do want to note the distinction between Sam's argument and yours, Sam, really focused on values changing within family systems. You're <clears throat> really focused on migration within the lower mainland um, and how people from other regions have moved in. Cheryl, on the ground, how would you weigh the different factors that produce this seismic shift?
3: Yeah, so I agree with a, a lot of what's been said already, but I'll just add a few points that I think Um, have been factors. So definitely um, with what Ryan was talking about, counter urbanization. So not just um, people immigrating to um, Langley, but where they're coming from. I think a lot of people are coming from Vancouver, from those more urban areas, and they're used to voting NDP. And so um, now they're in Langley. (laughs) Um, Then another thing that I think that has helped was the um, Corgan visiting Langley twice uh, and promising Skytrain. Of course, I don't know that he'll actually follow through on that, but um, I think it worked for a lot of voters. And of course, it it didn't hurt that the last three and a half years, um, people in Langley were fairly pleased with what the NDP did. I don't don't think they gave enough credit to the Greens for some of those things. Um, But yeah, so that helped as well. And then of course, you have the Liberals with sort of a lackluster leader. Um, they're not evolving. And, um, and then you have a growing sort of conservative party that ran quite a few high profile candidates in the Valley. So it was kind of like the perfect storm, I guess, for in the NDP's favor and uh, uh, not in the Liberals favor.
0: So um, I'm remembering these these crucial by elections in '94 and '95, where the BC Liberals squared off against every other pretender to the right, and in many ways, vote splitting among the parties further to the right of the Liberals, the Provincial Reform Party, the Family Coalition Party, um, all uh, the um, a number of uh, of provincial um, right parties of the right turned up diluted that vote and de Young and Van Dongen got in. Some people um, are shouting at the Tories these days about the Liberals' loss of the valley because we haven't seen this kind of right vote splitting so effective in the Lower Mainland in quite a while. Obviously the big Tory stories are the Peace River and regions like that, but um, Nathan, did the Langley, did the Tories uh, doing well in Langley? Was that surprising? Do they deserve some of the blame for the right losing Langley? Uh, what's your take? I think that uh,
4: the, the underperformance is, is, you know, the liberals alone. I mean, if you look at our last federal election, supposedly Maxime Bernier was supposed to be there to split the vote. I mean, in a recent by-election, the percentiles did seem to show that, but that's a by-election. It's not general and in the general Bernier failed to win his own seat so I think that we need to be very careful with the idea that it's just the right vote splitting there's also a question of underperformance the Tories were able to carry the banner federally Um, the right-wing party the token right-wing party was able to carry the banner federally and and wipe out those people to the right whereas here in BC with a leader who was questionable on his social conservatism, if not downright denigrating towards it, uh, who at times attempted to outspend the NDP, uh, he failed to connect, right? And he ran a campaign that was uh, not, not just lackluster. It was something, as we've noted the last time we met, out of, out of another age. It was like being in the twilight zone, and so I think that that actually is where the blame lands. Now, that being said, we need to be very clear about something. I have friends deep inside of the token right-wing party of BC, the former token right-wing party of BC, if we want to say that already and give that eulogy. Um, and they are telling me in no uncertain terms that the general consensus inside the party, uh, amongst the staffers, etc., who aren't always the bastions of conservatism, obviously, is to pull the, the, the party further to the left As if that's going to work. I I don't know what's going on over there. And and then on top of it, I would like to throw back at the rest of the panel here that the people who lost in this election are actual progressives, actual environmentalists. I think that, you know, I, I would still argue that neoliberal... Uh, consensus reigns. There's a few little token things here there, affordable housing, daycare, blah, blah, blah. But nonetheless, it is a neoliberal consensus when it comes to the economic plan of BC. And so if you're a true progressive, you should be actually extremely upset about how this election went.
0: So um, the Fraser Valley big surprise. Um, we, um, we see demographic change. We see generational change. We see a dash of vote splitting. I, uh, I won't full, wholly pull that out of the narrative. Um, and, uh, and then this question of the tangible infrastructure promises, Horgan siding with, um, Doug McCallum's idea of the Langley Skytrain, train, um, which is, you know, Proven vote-getter, obviously. Um, I'm, And I, I want us to look at another region that I found equally surprising. Um, so in the riding of Skeena, like, I, I don't think there's any riding. The NDP has spent more money trying to win back. Uh, the um, uh, Coastal Gas Link, uh, LNG Canada, all that, terminates in the riding of Skeena in town of Kitimat. And yet the NDP lost by four times as much as they lost that riding by, which is traditionally an NDP seat that was consistently held by the NDP since 1986 until the last election with one or two breaks. And we go to Prince George North, the riding that decided the 1996 election by sending a new Democrat. And again, the margin by which the liberal won was larger than ever before. Um, Throughout industrial, rural British Columbia, the NDP margins all got worse, despite John Horgan's deep, clear personal sympathy and desire to value those votes above other votes. They couldn't get Fraser Nicola back that Harry Lally had held until recently like Skeena, Columbia Revelstoke, which they held until 2017, lost by four times the margin. And the the seats, you do see the NDP picking up in the interior. None of them are industrial rural seats. Vernon, Okanagan Boundary, these are retirement industry agricultural seats, the seats that should be the most conservative. What do folks make of the other regional realignment and the um, the emergence of Industrial Fortress BC, the Liberals' safest territory?
2: I can jump in if you want. Yeah, Ryan,
0: go right ahead.
2: Yeah, well, I, I think it's, a, it's just polarization really is the story, right? It's an urban-rural divide, and the urban side swung very decisively to the NDP, and the rural side stayed liberal. I don't think it, there was a huge swing there, but you, like you say, it's notable when one half the province or two-thirds of the province goes massively to the NDP and the, the rest says no thanks. That's that's something. I think um, unapologetic support for the resource industry or un- unapologetic support for anything is going to beat apologetic support for anything at any time. So that, that, that I think is the story There is The liberals are unapologetically supportive of the resource industry and, and the NDP are apologetically supportive of it they try to balance some environmentalism in there and not very successful at it in my opinion, but yeah, that's, that's, I think the story. Uh, Sam. Yeah. I'm going to jump in and say that I I agree with Ryan. In fact,
1: I think that's a great way of, of illustrating that the, the public can smell a rat, right? They know when you're really supportive and they know when you're just taking a picture with a few friends on a rainbow crosswalk, pretending that you're, you know, pro LGBTQ, they can tell the difference. Um, and uh, I, I think Brian's right. The, the NDP is apologetically supportive of resource development and the resource communities can smell that. Um, but there's something else I wanna draw in here. And that is uh, a trend that happened in the United States in the last few elections that I think might help to explain what you're seeing here, Stuart, which is that post-secondary educated white voters are starting to drift left, or at least to, at least to the historically left party, the Democrats in the States, Uh, Hillary Clinton picking up some of those and uh, uh, Joe Biden, I think probably even more. So I don't, I haven't seen the Pew center research yet, but, uh, and the Okanagan, those, those central Okanagan seats, the NDP is picking up. Those are not resource towns, but they are all places where you see post-secondary campuses. Um, And not that there isn't a post-secondary campus in Prince George, of course there is. Um, But I think you're probably seeing an increase in the number of, of, post-secondary educated white voters in those areas who are probably starting to drift towards the NDP. And the same is true in the Fraser Valley. There are now more people with post-secondary education in the Fraser Valley than there were 20 or 30 years ago. The number of educated people is, or white voters, is going up. And that shift leftwards towards a a slightly more affluent voter because of their, their education and so on. I think that may also be part of this trend. It's not just the resources, it's it's the level of education and uh, a continental shift towards how educated white voters are voting.
0: Cheryl.
3: No. I first of all, I'm not sure I think the NDP NDP has been apologetically supportive because they have greatly increase the amount of subsidies going to at least the fossil fuel industry. I'm not so sure the same can be said about forestry. Um, but, so I sort of question that. I do think that voters are go- in those areas are going to continually be frustrated and, and growing frustration actually, because this industry is, is not coming back. It's, it's not going to be a thing. And um, so as long as they are represented by somebody who they see as having the power to do something, and they see that industry continuing to fail, there, I think there's just going to be a, a continual frustration until we see a party in power with a real plan to move into um, the emerging economy.
0: So uh, just I, I'm going to hold on to you for a minute, Cheryl, mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> Since um, 1991, Green Party, actually really since the party's founding, every election, it has done better in northern BC than it did in the previous election. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there were times when, in fact, its best results came out of northern BC. Aside from Mackenzie Kerr in Prince George Valmont, the most urban riding in the entire region The greens either failed to nominate or their vote went down in every sort of rural industrial northern seat doug gook came in fourth not third in caribou north and um so it's not just new democrats who took a pasting in the north this time um why do you think like is this because of your association with the Democrat new Democrats? Is it in spite of your association with this government? Why do you think outside of like that one seat, um, the Greens uh, really had their first serious res- reversal in Northern BC?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, okay, so not running a candidates obviously contributes to that, <laughs> um, which is really unfortunate and uh, hopefully we'll correct that uh, going forward. Um, And as far as Mackenzie Kerr goes, I think she's an actually an excellent example of of why she's successful because she understands that forestry is important. She supports the forestry industry, but she sees how it can be made more sustainable and how it can um, come in line with a green worldview, right? And that will actually um, benefit people there. And so I think she has a great message for the people of Prince George. And um, and as for the other writings, I'm not sure I'm not as knowledgeable about those candidates. But I can say that I do think we're still living under the shadow a bit of Andrew Weaver's right word shift. And um, you know, Sonia Firsteno only had a week <laughs> to become known by uh, by the electorate, and so I'm hopeful that that trend will reverse itself in the next election once people get to know her.
0: Now, Nathan, of course, you got the biggest—you guys got the biggest pile of good news coming out of Northern BC, particularly out of the Peace Country, with those strong second-place, thirty-plus percent finishes. Uh, but it wasn't just. The BC Tories, the Christian Heritage Party got 11% in one seat. The rural BC party got 11% in one seat. Even the Libertarians got over 10% in one seat. What do you make of this sort of um, cacophony of alternative voices on the right, all getting more popular at the same time in uh, Northern and industrial BC?
4: I don't think it's too dissimilar from what we've been seeing over the last decade or so, uh, and particularly as we kind of get to the end of the Harper era uh, in Canada. Um, The right in this country, and I mean in BC it's always been rather uh, diverse, right? We are many river valleys, we were supposed to be called New Caledonia. Uh, of course, which means New Scotland, and that's what we are. We are several tribes uh, separated by river valleys that have very particular desires, needs, dreams, and the only thing we hate more than the guy next door is the guy further downriver, right? Particularly when it all congregates at the mouth of the Fraser. So I think I think when it comes to the right in British Columbia, it's it's a it's a mixed thing. On the first hand, of course, as we've discussed before the BC Liberals had effectively shown the SOCONs to the door, or pushed them out, or to the back of the tent, or even, you know, had them fall out the side. They didn't want them around anymore. They had either actively or under the carpet done their best to undermine them. So that explains the Christian Heritage Party's rise. It also explains with, again, where Mr. Wilkinson and other members of the Liberal, BC Liberal Party, who unfortunately, I guess, started smoking whatever they were smoking in the Ontario Liberal Party and in the Federal Liberal Party uh, decided to start tacking left against the already historically left side of of, uh, BC, which is bizarre. And there were moments where they were trying to outspend them. So that explains where both Tories proper and as well as the Libertarian Party come from. And finally to the Libertarians themselves, in an era where free expression is getting uh, tighter and tighter for a lot of people, whether you want to talk about that just as the bc human rights council which seems to think it needs to weigh into everything or somehow to be this you know fourth estate and we can somehow consult it instead of an actual law court with actual rules uh, All all that put together would definitely explain in my humble opinion where people are feeling squeezed uh and looking for an alternative right-wing voice and so that would explain a lot of uh, that pickup all at the same time
0: what do you think happened to all those new democrats um, that uh, that were around. I know some of them are still voting NDP and the NDP pulled in some, you know, mid-30s percentages in uh, some of their better seats. In the seats that they held during this government, their margins went up in North Coast and Stikine. But when we think about, like, the 37% of people in uh, Prince George Mackenzie who voted NDP and elected Paul Ramsey uh, back in the 90s, when we think of... Um, you know, the, uh, all those voters in McKenzie, Tumblr Ridge, all these places where we had NDP voters, did they vanish? Did they become something else? Who are those folks today who were voting for the NDP in large numbers, uh, up North, uh, uh, a generation ago? Throw that to Nathan and everyone else.
4: I guess I'll, I guess I'll take yeah. a swing at it first, but, um, I mean, I remember, I remember reading in a left-leaning but still reasonable look magazine out of the States that one of the things that happened to the traditional Democrat in the Blue Wall um, and, in, and in union towns was that after the union organization hierarchy fell apart they were going to you know of course mega churches and that sort of thing and all of a sudden socially conservative issues came to the fore and i think that everybody here can agree that there was a clear evolution from where say 1970s unionism was to where progressivism is today and how much it actually leaves behind the average blue dog democrat right and so perhaps not a too dissimilar thing happened in the north yes it pulled a certain direction for many, many years. I know that uh, Sherry Ogasawara, for example, in 2013 did very well. I was sitting next to her and Shirley Bond on the same stage, um, as well as, uh, actually, no, I don't believe there was a Green candidate in that one. I think the Green candidate was in the other writing. But in any case, we we had some very lively discussions. So what happened to those voters lately? Maybe it was the curtailments. Maybe it was the feeling like uh, Horgan was pivoting too much into suburban... Uh, Metro Vancouver and not discussing things up in the north. I'm not sure what exactly the line would be. I'd actually throw that to the rest of the panel to kind of weigh into that.
1: Hey, I'll, I'll jump in and, yeah. and jump to a, a history lesson that goes way back. Uh, I was all of two years old when this little micro history happened. But there was this candidate running in, in the middle of Vancouver uh, named Jerry Scott who went on to be uh, director of the BC NDP as a staff member and, and director of communications for the Suzuki Foundation? He continued to be involved uh, a lot, but th- this was his best chance to win a seat as a candidate. And Dave Barrett was was party leader, and Jerry Scott got up at an all candidates meeting and said, "If the NDP forms a government, we're going to build SkyTrain." And Within a very short amount of time, Jerry Scott got a phone call from Dave Barrett and said, are you trying to kill me in Prince George? Uh, Because you're announcing just on the fly that you're gonna spend a billion dollars on a train in Vancouver so that people can get, for what people in Prince George see as driving from one part of town to another. And um, you are now going to stop talking as a candidate. For the rest of the campaign because you have broken the number one rule you went in freelance as a candidate and announced a billion dollars back when a billion was a lot and um <clears throat> and indeed the, the ndp lost and it did not you know recover that on that issue up in the north and, and the resource communities well guess what the ndp is still today they're a skytrain building party we are building a SkyTrain to Langley. We built a millennium line. We were in favor of all the extensions that the BC Liberals were in favor of. We are spending billions. And hey, I support rapid transit. I think transit's good. But if you're trying to convince people in towns with no transit that you love them, there is a contrast to be had. And I think Horgan has looked at the map of British Columbia and said, my path to re-election isn't by trying to be something I'm not. We are an urban party now. We support uh, pretty shiny things and Skytrain is pretty and shiny. And hey, hey, look, we just won like six seats in the Fraser Valley. We've never won before. This seems to be, or five, sorry, not to exaggerate, five. This seems to be working pretty well. And the two seats in Prince George that we didn't figure we're going to pick up, we didn't. And so in terms of electoral politics, we're the Skytrain party now. And Prince George just still isn't going to vote for that.
0: Uh, other observations
2: before I flip this around,
0: uh, uh, Cheryl, Ryan, do you want to weigh in on who those people have become?
2: I would just wonder if uh, if there's a certain amount of uh, just a, a decrease in the amount of labor that's used in a lot of these resource industries too. So there's still you know good union people there, but they're just not as many of them. Um, I don't know. Other than that, I think I think Nathan and Sam covered this pretty well. Mm-hmm.
3: I would just add that we did have record, you know, low turnout so, or lower turnout than last time. So it is possible that some of those people were just deflated enough to stay home.
0: Yeah. So I so I want to flip around Nathan's observation because it's a it's an observation. I've been doing a bunch of writing. It's something I'm very focused on. Right. The, the social life and the material life of the old trade union world has vanished the Labor Day picnics, the socializing at union halls, the Commonwealth Society bingo, all of these different things have withered away, not just here, but throughout the whole of the um, industrial global north. And what's replaced those things, again, I think uh, Nathan's earned the money, it's religious institutions often that are now the social glue in all kinds of communities. What does that tell us then about the power of the churches and the Gurdwaras in the Fraser Valley? If there's this dramatic leftward shift, does this mean that, um, that the folks who are moving out there, the new folks, etc., that because uh, Langley was still a pretty church-filled place when I had in-laws there, it still seemed to be a a community of much religiosity. Are we missing a story of what's happening in congregations in the Valley?
1: Well, uh, Stuart, I'm going to jump in and say, this goes back to my opening comment. The children are not doing what their parents did. All the parents who went to church, they're not being followed by their 30 and 40 year old kids. And the people who moved in from East Van because they couldn't afford to buy a place in East Van, they weren't going to church in the first place. And, you know, I bought a place in Langley, my first home-owning experiences in Langley. I grew up on the North Shore. I, you know, I, I wasn't a church-going kid. Um, you know, I, it just wasn't who I was. And so you think, well, there are plenty of church-goers who still voted Liberal in the Valley. Lots, thousands of them. But their kids didn't. And the people moving in from Burnaby and, and met other parts of Metro Vancouver for affordable, more affordable housing, um, affordable by our standards. <laughs> um, and, you know, they just aren't hearing a message from a pastor because they haven't seen one since seven Easters ago when they got dragged along. You know, that's not who they look to for leadership. Uh however, I mean other spiritual communities, yeah, I think there's a lot of organizing that happens, of course, in in spiritual communities, um, in most especially in the sick community. Uh but uh you know, where is the biggest gurdwara in the Fraser Valley, well, it's in, the, it's in the seat we lost in Amateur. Well, two seats we lost, but that's where that one is. So I, I don't think that that's what was pulling us through. You know, Preet Ray was probably our highest profile South Asian candidate in the Valley. He didn't win, even though he's a sitting school trustee.
0: Did you see how much Rachna Singh's vote went down? Uh, that That's quite striking, that Green Timbers vote. Yeah. Uh, um, I really felt like it wasn't just the churches. That there's some kind of like larger ecclesiastical crisis, uh, in the uh, south of the Fraser.
1: Green Timbers needs a little investigation because it was a few years ago one of our strongest, if not our strongest. I think Sue Hamill got 71 percent. Yeah, 72 percent. Sue Hamill just dominated that seat. Now she has uh, uh, an organizing capacity and a political capacity, unlike no other uh provincial candidate I've ever seen. Um, she's just incredible. Uh, so that that is going to require a certain amount of postmortem. Uh, but, you know, I, I remember scoffing at a news article that named Green Timbers a competitive seat. I thought, this is clearly <laughs> written by a journalist because this <laughs> is written by somebody who went to journalism school and thinks that Green Timbers is competitive? Like, no. And then I thought, wow, they knew something I didn't know or they lucked out.
0: You are listening to CFUR 88.7 on your FM dial, broadcasting here in Prince George, British Columbia, with the support of Los Altos Institute and the Canadian Local Journalism Initiative backed by our federal government. We're in the middle of our monthly political panel featuring Ryan Campbell of the BC Liberals, Sam Schechter of the BC NDP, Uh, Nathan Gita of the B.C. Conservative Party, and Cheryl Wiens of the Green Party of British Columbia, who was just recently a candidate who placed well in the provincial riding of Langley. We're now switching subjects from that election to the current COVID situation here in B.C. Yeah, so this, um, this I think, does uh, does say some interesting things about larger changes in BC society. Um, Ryan, um, I'm going to switch gears in, a, in the thing, because it looks like we've got time for a second subject, but Ryan, you're about ready to go?
2: Well, I just wanted to point out that the NDP vote actually went up in green timbers, so I think... You oh, can... it did? Yeah, there was no green candidate there, so... Oh, went, so it's the liberal
0: vote went up. That's what I was tracking. Oh, yeah. thank so the, you. So
2: the gap changed. You might be thinking of uh, which one was Golds or Chima in though. Um, I think Surrey Panorama was closer than expected.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Sims did not hold on to it as as easily as was thought. But uh, there, it's um, there. One can't measure a, a lack of uh, of church influence or temple influence. I should say. I mean, other interesting things are happening there. Um, I noticed that, um, Cheryl, just before I, I get to you, I noticed that you guys fell victim to a con that, uh, that we did. You had Modiite entryists in, uh, in Delta. So um, that's another part of the story of the religious makeup of, of the election. But where were you actually gonna go?
3: So um I was interested in in thinking about whether or not covid had a um, sort of depressing effect on the influence of the church you know I know a lot of church pastors and and church leaders are are pushing the government to allow them you know to have more flexibility with um, meeting in person during covid and i I think um, you know people might be feeling more disconnected and and having some independent thoughts separate from their um, congregations right now. So that could be maybe a temporary um, effect.
0: I think, and that's very helpful. And it allow it, it, it enables my segue even more. Um, now when our COVID stats were clearly favorably, favorably comparable to similar jurisdictions, right? they, the Bonnie Henry personality cult became a fascinating regional phenomenon that even the New York times covered the icons, the shoes, all of that stuff about, you know, Henry as this authoritative technocratic public figure. But of course our numbers are not as good as they were. And I've begun to watch different social media debates about why our numbers are getting worse and why we have a doubling rate now and things like that. And some people are saying, this is because Bonnie Henry can't exercise the power that she wishes to. Uh, that she clearly dissents from what the government wants and she's fronting policies she doesn't agree with. That sort of, that, that, those are people more likely to own the shoes. Um, and there are numerous, uh, and then, or, ha- or only icons. But then there are other people saying, who are going the opposite route, going, you see, it's Sunnybrook all over again. It's SARS all over again. This government has delegated too much of its authority um, to Bonnie Henry. Uh, she has to wear this. And I think that raises, it's not just about this one issue. It's about our ideas about policymaking that there are two loci of policymaking in government, the permanent civil service and the party in power. Both of these entities are tasked with policymaking. Both of these entities are in a way co-governing. So I'm interested in your comments on what this discomfort is about these, these two different loci of policymaking, specifically with respect to COVID and more generally about what it says about how British Columbians are thinking about their government.
4: I mean, the cult of Bonnie Henry, I mean, I think it's like anything. Uh, We're all gonna look for a savior. Uh, And uh, Bonnie Henry was it uh, for a long time. And for some people, she still is. And of course, for those who always have an implicit trust in government policy or the civil service or technocracy, that is always going to be the case. Uh, people like Monty Henry and other experts, experts, uh, will always be trusted implicitly uh, and 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 forthwith. I think that when it comes to our numbers and everything else, I mean, you look at some of the other examples in the world. It seems like of all places, Japan, uh, Sweden, and South Dakota, of all places, got it right, and everybody else seems to have got it wrong. And most of them seem to have essentially locked up the elderly and let the youth develop herd immunity. Uh, the death rates there seem to be rather low, the ICU rates seem rather low. And I mean, even in our part of the world, I still, I, I, we're, we've got all these cases, but not seeing our ICUs flooded and I have questions about that. I'm not a skeptic of the disease, I know it exists, I know it's killed people. I am skeptical about what we've tried to do about it and, and whether or not any of that's been effective and whether or not anyone will ever be held accountable for it. I don't think anybody will, to be honest with you. So I think when it comes to policymaking in British Columbia, I don't think you were wrong with your post the other day about one side gets to be smug and the other side gets to be smug about them being smug. That's That's true. Uh, but even furthermore, I think that at this point there's just a huge, probably unpolled, not silent majority, but just middle of the road British Columbian, who really like they probably suspect that nobody knows what they're doing, and everybody's been throwing spaghetti at the wall the whole time, and now and now what? Now we're gonna have another mandate or another lockdown or another what to what end? Like I mean, we didn't know what we were doing before. We don't know what we're doing now. So who cares? I don't know. That's that's kind of where I've fallen myself.
2: Robin, I mean, if, yeah. Um, so I just want to point out: if Sweden's getting it right, you're calling for the deaths of another ten thousand Canadians because their death rate is twice ours. So I don't think Sweden's getting things right. Japan uh, has probably some genetic resistance there. That there's there was a study out that if you're um, if you are uh blood type is b you have some resistance to coronaviruses and there's already a culture of mask wearing there so yeah wear we're mask and 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 if you're lucky enough to have some kind of historic based immunity to the disease that that, that works well but we can't acquire that very easily <laughs> here um or we we don't want to wipe out everyone who doesn't have uh doesn't have uh, blood type b to to get it um Yeah, I just wanted, I really wanted to correct that point. If Sweden's getting it right, what the hell is getting it wrong? I mean, an extra 10,000 deaths? No, no.
0: Uh, So um, just to uh, um, stick with you for a minute, Ryan, um, I am interested, you mentioned masking, culture of masking, many people credit the early successes in British Columbia to Are above average East Asian population and the way that that brought a culture of masking involuntarily. Now, Bonnie Henry is now known for a number of things. One of the ways she's now understood is as a mask skeptic relative to other public health officials and relative to other um, elected officials. Um, Do you think that um, if masking, I mean, we're all recognizing it's significant, do, do you think that's a fair assessment of Henry? And if so, why does a mask skeptic have the kind of following she does?
2: Well, I, I think that uh, I, I'm not actually sure on the timing because I know there's a lot of health issues that were slow on the uptake on the masking side. I My personal suspicion is that might have been deliberate in that we might not have had enough masks to go around and, you know, worrying about shortages for people who actually need PPE. Um, I don't know. Um, but I think what Bonnie Henry got right was locking down a relatively soft lockdown in BC compared to other jurisdictions, but a relatively early lockdown. Um, what is frustrating to me is I think the second wave we're doing the opposite We're we're, well, it's difficult because the main vectors of transmission are in people's homes. You can't do- lock down people's houses. Um, but, yeah, that, that's my long and short of it. I, I, I don't think uh, being slowed on the uptake on masks is definitely bad, but I don't think getting there eventually is what matters. Carol? Yeah.
3: Uh, so I agree with Ryan that I, I believe the slowness on the uptake of mask um, prescribing was definitely a concern around supply chains. And I think those concerns still exist, but thankfully people were then encouraged to wear, like, homemade masks as opposed to you know, N95s that healthcare workers and other people um, really need. Um, and then I just wanted to say that I think a lot of this frustration with Dr. Bonnie Henry, I think it, um, I think her worldview has been shaped by her work in develop, more developing countries where she sort of developed this idea that once people have the information and they're given the resources to implement the information, they'll just do it, right? And, and that seemed to work in the beginning of this pandemic where um, people got the information, they were listening to her, they did the things, and we flattened the curve. And um, the thing is now that there's been enough time from um, my perspective for um, conspiracy theories to emerge and for social media to get onto this whole thing. And um, now you hear about pandemics and different things like that. And so I don't think maybe Dr. Bonnie Henry's worldview is quite up to date with some of that phenomenon. And um, what now people are wanting is for, you know, these things to be enforced. And um, I don't know that she's up to that. And I don't know what it's going to take to get the government to move on that.
0: Sam.
1: Stuart, victory has a hundred fathers and defeat is an orphan. And everybody was happy to heap praise on Dr. Henry and the NDP government, uh, when we were winning. And somebody said to me, uh, during the election campaign, do you think we'll go back into lockdown? I said, yeah, E plus one. Um, you know it is as soon as this election's over we'll we'll head into lockdown and i i was off by a few weeks but not by much you know because we are now losing and nobody wants to own that and the people who saw the ndp government is the right government to you know take on a health care crisis and dr henry as this savior figure well they can't all be wrong now can they i mean if they won the first battle of the war they can't surely be losing the second. How could that happen? Well, because nobody wants to own defeat. And the the challenge that we're going to find ourselves with very soon is: well, do we lose fast or do we lose slow? And maybe losing slowly is better. Um, but you know, there there is a there is a group of people who really hate being told to do anything. And they don't wanna to be told to help others. They don't wanna to be told to help themselves. They, they equate being told you should consider wearing a mask in public with never speak again. We're muzzling you. Your freedom of speech is under attack. Your body is under attack. And they're saying, well, I don't want that. And it's like, well, we can't reach you. And every one of you that we can't reach is somebody is is a vector that we can't contain. And if we can't contain it, we're going to lose and no government in a free society is going to actually take the steps that would impose the level of restraint that that group of people is afraid would be imposed. So you're, you're at this, this stalemate of, of action where there is no winning this. There's now, no winning.
0: Now, most jurisdictions, though, where cases are uh, increasing at the rate they are here, have more coercive measures, right? That um, uh, we see more coercive measures in England. We see more coercive measures in New York, California. We see, um, we actually see that this culture of voluntary compliance, um, the idea, because I actually, I'm not sure I buy the idea that, People who are hostile to advice are equally hostile to rules. I think many people take the position, either make a rule or don't. But the advice and the scolding and the morality policing, um, it it reaches a different group of people. I mean, at work, I'll tell you, when when I've had a, a supervisor who said to me, I think you should change this student's grade, my response is you're dressing this up as me saying, I think I made a mistake. I don't think I made a mistake. You think I made a mistake. So order me to change the grade. If you give me a direct order, I will do this. I won't feel manipulated. And so I'm not sure that everybody who is hostile to an advice and scolding based system would be more hostile to a rules based system. I think voluntary compliance culture has a lot to do with class and other things. And I think an enforcement culture appeals to people who have a different kind of politics than that. What, I mean, so one of the questions I think it might be useful to ask is, are we sure that the voluntary compliance approach is going to, is a more effective approach than a rules based enforcement approach?
1: Stuart, I and agree Sam, with you. Sam, you're ready to go here. Yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying, that that people want clear rules. And, you know, I, I've said if, you know, people say, well, what, what do you think of, of what Bonnie Henry is doing in terms of leading this pandemic? I said, well, when I can understand what her message is, I'll let you know. Because she waffles, she is unclear. She takes days between an announcement and the official order being published. Uh, th- this has not been a well communicated response on her part. Um, and the, the voluntary compliance method, it, it does build into a culture of shaming, right? We're gonna shame other people who don't comply. And I do think that it would be more effective to actually have rules and rules that were meaningful. I mean, no gatherings of a size of 50 people, but be careful inside your house. There, there is an asinine disconnect between the dangers of having seven people over for dinner, but 49 people at a larger gathering is somehow acceptable. There there are these uh, inconsistencies. And I do agree that a rules-based approach would make more sense. But even then, even the jurisdictions where you're talking about California, New York, Great Britain, where they they are imposing more uh, stricter measures, there is still resistance, right? There are still rallies against, these measures or in favor of Trump or you know, whatever else, which I, basically I equate the two. Um, and you know, I, you're never gonna completely get all these people participating. And uh, there was a, uh, I'm, I'm, I can't remember the exact details, but there was an event recently in, in Atlantic Canada where indeed uh, public health officials went around ticketing people who were at too large a rally. Um, but so what? That's not going to actually stop those vectors, I don't think.
0: Will it slow it more or less effectively than shaming, I think is a, the question before many of us. Other folks want to throw in here on this question.
3: For me, I think we have sort of two pandemics, which is the anti-science, anti-fact-based you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, movement and um, conspiracy theories and all the rest of it. And so how, like, how do you protect society when, when that's going on? And I don't know that we're going to get compliance from those people if it's, you know, in, in, even if it is enforced, but I can tell you that I think that I would be better protected because those people would just be you know, thrown out of the workplace or thrown out of school or whatever, what have you. And not that I want to see that happen, but I also don't want to see people who are doing everything they can to protect themselves be made ill because of somebody who just doesn't listen to the law or science or any of the people who are studying this disease. So um, yeah, I kind of am losing my patience for some of that. (laughs)
0: Uh Nathan, Ryan, care to weigh
2: in? Uh I just I would agree with your point, Stuart, that I think it actually makes more sense to have hard rules. If these things are bad, you shouldn't do them and there should be consequences. Um and just saying you're a bad person if you don't do them, I think yeah, there's there's an understandable amount of pushback to that. Um I I what I'd be interested in hearing if anyone has an idea here is how you actually even if effectively enforce the, the issue around gatherings at people's homes. If that's the main vector of transmission, like, what do you have? Like, you're, you're like riding on your neighbor? Like, I don't know. It, it's, it's a tough nut to crack.
0: Yeah, and I think that uh, Sam's observation also is salient in that our standards are so different for gatherings when money changes hands. I saw a really shocking um, Facebook uh, ad the other day uh, by a, uh, a pub uh, that was advertising that you can't gather in your home, so you should come to the pub where you'll be safe. Uh, and uh, that strikes me, that tells us a little something about some of the concerns that might be underpinning our response, that might be driven by factors other than um, human health. Uh, Cheryl.
3: Yeah, I mean, I totally understand that that does seem shady (laughs) Um, on the government's part and like a contradiction. But I also think that it does have some basis in like, you know, reason in that businesses have been forced to work with WorkSafeBC and come up with a COVID-19 safety plan. And so we do expect in those places there to be more controls to prevent people from contracting COVID-19, as contradictory as that may seem. Um, so I just think we have to think about that as well.
0: All right, I think it's last words today. For sure.
4: sure, I think it's important too to realize that I, you know, I haven't seen a single commercial uh, for any kind of sanitary item that isn't leaning into the whole pandemic thing. So, I mean, everybody's making their blood money somewhere. Let's be honest about that. Thank you. Uh, Final word is virus going to virus, and that's exactly it. Lose slow or lose fast. Uh, Get through it quicker, get through it slower. And actually, we do have one final example of what goes wrong when you marry yourself to the war too much. My grandmother, who was always on the right side of uh, that losing battle in Germany, uh, was there at the end of that war. And what happened was, of course, they tried to control the economy because they had to rebuild the economy and that's fine. But then uh, they gave it over to a liberal Democrat who had survived the purges under a certain you know, enterprising corporal. And he said, you know what? We're not going to do the rationing thing anymore. We are going to get everybody 50 or 100 bucks and we're gonna let people set their own prices for things and make their own decisions. Everybody said this was nuts, totally nuts. It would fail, it would blow up, it would all burn down. And things appeared on that next Monday morning after the Friday they deposited all the money that hadn't been seen since before the war. Meanwhile, seven years later in England, when my grandmother visited there, they were still lining up for petrol, they were still lining up for food, they were still rationing everything. So there is a cost to marrying an idea that gets out of date right there comes a time when the war must end i'm not saying we're there yet we play that game too long and you're gonna pay for it you know you're gonna pay for it
0: all right so i want to thank you all for um uh coming back uh we've got free and clear, a long time to comment on this enormous majority government. It's not going anywhere. So um, let's, uh, let's settle in, diversify our topics in the coming weeks, and uh, we'll see you back in four weeks, if that's all right. This has been another broadcast of Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George on CFUR 88.7, co-sponsored by Los Altos Institute l-o-s-a-l-t-o-s dot c-a